0: Once again good morning church family and uh, before i get i just want to take a moment to thank all of you who work with our kids um, especially grateful for those that invest in the noah's ark and uh, i saw some faces up here that i just want to thank i wanted to thank Paige sessions and, and natalie jungles and carol bonder for their work with those kids that was uh, that was special and i do want to say if this is your first time worshiping with us Uh, We're so glad that you've joined us, whether you're watching online or you're in here in person. In this Advent season, we are looking at the prologue to John's gospel, which is those first 18 verses. And we're taking a highlighter to those verses that introduce us to Jesus. Those statements that reveal to us something of his identity, who he is. And in week one, we looked at verse nine, uh, what it means that Jesus is the true light. Then in week two, we looked at verse 14, the implications that Jesus is the word that has become flesh. And this morning, I'd like to focus our attention on verse four. Uh, We're told this at the beginning of verse four, in him was life. And uh, we're going to read the passage now and just to situate us in the context with which this appears, I'll begin reading in verse one. And uh, these will be familiar verses to many of you, uh, but let's turn our attention there now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ, and it says, in the beginning was the Word. So, so Jesus, or the Word, is, is preexistent, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you're wondering, well, how can that be the case? How can it be both, as Pastor David mentioned last week? We have a little pamphlet out at our resource center. What David didn't tell you is that he's the author of that pamphlet. He did a great job writing it. Just a, uh, It's free. It's out there. You can pick it up. It uh, does a wonderful job explaining the Trinity. Uh, but he goes on to say, all things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, there's our word, life, and the life was the light of men. And I'd like to reflect with you on two questions. Number one, what does it mean in him was life? And then number two, why does this matter to us? Why, why, why is this relevant information? And with the second question, there'll be two subpoints. We'll see a problem and then a solution. So what does it mean in him or in Jesus was life? Well, uh, notice that it doesn't say that in him was a life. That would not tell us anything in particular about Jesus. But when we drop that indefinite article, that changes the nature of the statement, does it? If I were to say that God is love as opposed to God is a love, that you would understand that when I'm saying that, that God is love, that I'm making a claim about his essence, something about his nature. And so, likewise, when we say in the beginning, before there was anything else in the world, there was the word. And this word, in this word, was life. Well, one of the things that we're saying about God is that God is life, that he's alive, that he's living. And he's doing something like thinking and loving and relating, and he's having a will for all of eternity And so to the one who would ask, well, who created God? Well, we would say, well, God's always been there. And to the one who would follow up with, well, uh, how did he get to be this way? The answer is he he didn't get to be that way. He didn't get special powers like a a Marvel character. He didn't have an interaction with radioactive uh, spiders or ooze or special crystals He wasn't acted on by some outside force. He's always been the way that he is. As far back as you go in eternity, there's one constant reality. That's what this passage is saying. And that constant reality is divine personal life. Now, just as an aside, this is why it's impossible to harmonize a materialistic worldview with the Christian faith. Uh, The materialistic worldview would say this, that in the beginning was matter- and energy and then over billions of years with no creator with no intervention from an intelligent being there emerged from this mindless lifeless impersonal matter and energy guess what emerged life and all the conditions necessary for life to flourish on this planet and in contrast uh, the Christian worldview asserts the exact opposite John 1 what it's telling us here is that divine personal life is what's always existed and this life is what gave rise to all that we see around us and so if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin when we say that in him was life what we're saying is that Jesus by his very nature is life and he's the source of all life and I would submit to you that this life that is in Jesus, this life that he possesses, it's a different type of life than ordinary human life or what we might call our, our physical life. The way that we normally use the word life is with reference to our existence. So if I was to say, you know, my grandmother has lived a long life or I'm grateful that automo- automobile accident didn't claim your life, you know I'm referring to your physical existence on this earth, right? That period of time between your birth and death. But when we say that in Jesus was life, we aren't just saying that his life has no beginning and it has no end. It goes on forever. That's true, of course. But there's more to it than that. What I hope to show you is that this life isn't just a life that, that, that goes on forever it's not just an assertion about the the quantitative aspect of his life that it's perpetual life but there's a qualitative aspect to it as well in other words there's a certain quality to it it's about how good his life is and this brings us to question number two why should this information matter to us why should we be interested in this at all And I'm going to ask for your forgiveness for asking maybe a a rather dark question. But I, I think it helps us get to the nub of the matter in quick order. Let me ask you this. Do you and I have any guarantee that we'll be alive, say, a week from now? No. I see some of you shaking your head. East, west, yeah. And and we certainly don't have any guarantee that we would be alive, say, 20 years from now or 50 years from now. And and I I know many of you in our church family, uh, you've recently lost loved ones. You're aware of this. And I I bring this up, uh, not wanting in any way to to trigger any grief, uh, but in hopes of helping us realize our universal problem, and that's death. Our problem's death. And the Bible offers us an explanation for why this is the case, and it's, it's probably even more complex than you might have initially realized. What we see in the creation account is that after God breathed his life into the first human being, he placed that man in a garden, and that garden functioned like a sanctuary. It was a place where, where man and God met with God. And uh, I want to read from you now from a the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a children's book. Maybe some of you parents have this, and if not, it'd be a great gift for Christmas. The author of this is Sally Lloyd Jones. If any of you are familiar with the name, Dr. David uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, he was one of the uh, more famous preachers from the 20th century. Uh, he was uh, uh, originally a physician and uh, then went on to pastor. and uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has uh, this paraphrase of, uh, I'm just going to read for you, I think she does a wonderful job helping us envision, and you know what, I'm going to actually have to turn there, I can't read that on the screen, (laughs) I'd have to get real close, God saw all that he had made, and he loved them, and they were lovely because he loved them, but God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children, and the world would be their perfect home. So God breathed, there's our word again, life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, or we could say life. And nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. And there's more that we could say about the garden, but I want to call your attention to the two trees that were in that garden. You probably know this, there was the tree of life, and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And about this latter tree, we read this in Genesis two seventeen. but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you know the biblical account, Adam and Eve eat of the tree, don't they? But do they drop dead? Do they cease to exist physically? Well, the Bible tells us that Adam goes on to live to be 930 years old. So in in what sense did they die? Well, we could say this. The death that they experience is, is twofold. They do very much enter into the realm of the dead. The first thing we see is that they're cut off from the source of life. They are expelled from that garden sanctuary in God's presence. For a lack of a better term, we could say that they experience a spiritual death. If you're taking notes, which is, we could say this, that the soul loses God. That fellowship that they enjoyed with their creator and all that fulfillment that came from being in communion with the one whose life was, was so satisfying, That intimate fellowship, that unmediated fellowship they enjoyed with God, that was severed. And being cut off from the very source of life, we see this also eventuates in physical death. And this is what physical death is. It's the soul leaving the body. Scripture tells us that that physical death is an act of mercy on God's part. In Genesis chapter 3... Verses 22 to 23, we read this. This is after they had sinned. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. What we see here in Scripture is unique as as far as I know. I can't think of another place where God begins a a sentence and then doesn't finish it. He just sort of breaks off. You know when we do that, right? Maybe aside from having a senior moment. We, We do that when we have a thought that's so awful, it's so unbearable that we can't bring ourselves to speak it. We don't want to finish the thought. And that's what happens here as God reflects on the possibility of man living forever in his sinful condition. With our souls cut off from him, he can't even finish the sentence. And so to ensure this doesn't occur, the man and woman are cut off from the tree of life. Uh, we don't have many details regarding what this tree of life is, exactly was but we know it was centrally located in the garden and it had the ability apparently to perpetually sustain physical life uh, the presence of this tree by the way indicates that adam and eve uh, before they sinned before the fall they were not immortal first timothy six sixteen tells us that god alone is immortal and so mankind experiences life because of god's prerogative because god is willing to share it but knowing that our life on this earth would be filled with sorrow because of sin, God graciously limits the number of years we'd be alive. He, he spares us the agony of an endless existence in a sinful condition separated from Him. I'm going to turn to the children's storybook again because I, I think there's a, um, again, a, a wonderful, uh, just a paraphrase that helps us envision What transpired when God's one commandment was broken? And maybe if I get really close I could read that, but I'm not going to take any chances. We read this. And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong, and they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, "'Children, usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him, but this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows.'" Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done? God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And terrible pain came into God's heart his children hadn't just broken the one rule they had broken God's heart they had broken their wonderful relationship with him and now he knew everything else would break God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong from now on everything would die even though it was all supposed to last forever you see sin had come into God's perfect world and it would never leave. God's children would be always running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. But God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. So the problem brought about by sin, what we see here, is that our souls are disconnected from the one in whom there is real life. And this then leads to physical death. But if we keep reading, we know that's not the end of the downworld spiral following our time on earth, what it says is that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, or we could say eternal judgment. And uh, that judgment, for those who are judged, uh, the book of Revelation, four different times, it calls it second death, or uh, where it's likened to a, a lake of fire, and so, what we see is that there's a pretty serious and real problem. And what do we do about this? Well, well, some people recognize that, that disconnected from life and God, that there's pain in this world. And you know what they do? They conclude that life is meaningless and absurd. And there's a name for this philosophy. It's called nihilism. And other of us, us I, I think this is the more common approach, we recognize that we're disconnected from life in God, and so what we do is we say we're going to go seek life elsewhere. And we go and we try and find life on our own terms. And we think, uh, well, maybe if we take epic vacations and we figure out how to spend more time pursuing our hobbies, we'll tap into the real life, right? Maybe, maybe if we achieve the goals that we set for ourselves in school and we land the dream job, or our kids get accepted in the right schools and marry well, then, then we'll be brimming over with fullness of life. If we can just figure out how to live every moment in the present and carpe diem, we'll get real life, right? Well, I'd say it's true that some of those things can contribute to a sense of a life well lived, but real life is not found in those things. There are a lot of people who have those things. People who have plenty of money, people who have popularity, and people who don't have to worry about how they're going to pay the bills, and they're ending up in rehab. Just watch TMZ. No, really don't watch TMZ. Um, (laughs) but, but But there's plenty of evidence in Hollywood for the point I'm making, you know, despite the fact that right now we live in an age of abundance, despite the fact that I would say that most of us live better than, than, than kings and queens in the past. You know what studies show? That happiness is actually on the decline in our nation. And if we think that we can find real life with more stuff or more accomplishments or more good times, I think it's a lot like taking Motrin for chronic knee pain. You know if you have chronic knee pain, you throw enough Motrin on it, you can temporarily mask that pain, can't you? But eventually that Motrin is going to wear off and the pain is going to resurface. And it's the same way for us. Because we're disconnected from God at a spiritual level, we can never find real life in possessions or in achievements or in experiences that the world has to offer. It's just temporarily masking the problem. And what do we do about the fact that our days on this earth are numbered? What's our grand solution to our mortality? You know the best that I think we have to offer right now? Retinol. And a a host of anti-aging creams, and maybe some superfoods like chia seeds. You want to know what sells right now? Anything with anti-aging in front of it. I googled um, just for fun earlier in the week. Top ten anti-aging products. And let me tell you, there there are abundance of of places that are trying to answer this question. Virtually every magazine in the past six months has come up with their own list. Southern Living, Town and Country, Time, Vogue, Cosmo, People, Women's Health, Good Housekeeping, Real Simple, these, all these magazines had lists. Here's my favorite product. What, what, what do you think? Um, you, you think my wife might freak out if uh, she rolled over in bed and I had that on? Now, listen, I, I am not knocking the desire to care for your body in hopes that it will be useful to you for as long as possible. My wife will tell you I'm pretty health conscious and I'm interested in caring for the body God gave me. But here's the deal. Is this mask, and we can take that down, but is, is that mask or eating kale chips or pomegranate seeds or taking ice baths, is it going to make it so that our, our loved ones will never uh, benefit from our life insurance policy? And the answer is no. It might buy us a little extra time, but it's only a delaying action. action. We do not have a good solution to the fact that the soul will one day leave the body. But here's what we see at the beginning of John's gospel. We see God's solution to our problem. Jesus' coming is presented in terms very similar to Genesis 1. Both John and Genesis begin with the words, "...in the beginning." And the coming of Jesus into the world is cast in terms reminiscent of that very first creation. In both accounts, we see God's word going forth, and we see repeated references to light and darkness. And the point of the shared language between Genesis and John is to present Jesus as coming into the world as an act of recreation. It's the dawning of a new day for sinful man. The signal is sent that God's presence with mankind can be restored because in him was life and therefore there is the possibility of a solution to our problem. Jesus is, is presented as not someone who can just help us get access to life. He isn't a middleman. He isn't a broker. He is the very source or fountain of life itself. This is why he would tell the woman at the well, he would say this, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, what happens when one drinks of the water that Jesus gives? What happens when one has a share in the life that he has to offer? Well, it reverses everything that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. We enter into the realm of the living. When we take hold of Jesus by faith, we're immediately reconnected to the source of life. Spiritual life is restored. Not completely yet, but still in a very real way. Jesus would say in John 5, 24, He would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's a present tense reality. One doesn't gain eternal life at a future point in time. It's a current possession. It's something that's received immediately when one believes in Jesus. And as a result of being reconnected to the source of life, one can experience real life during their physical existence on earth. We see this in John 10.10. Jesus declares, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it, how? Help me out? Abundantly. So in contrast to a thief who comes to take, Jesus is extending this promise of a full and abundant life. And this is why I said that eternal life is not only to be understood in terms of of a quantity, but also quality. It's about how good this life is. Quality is again in view when Jesus stands up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and he says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Imagine that you lived in an arid environment like the Israelites, where water was essential for life, I think it helps us understand the point that Jesus is making metaphorically. He's insisting that he's this source of a, of a bountiful provision of what is absolutely necessary for life. He can provide refreshment for the thirsty souls. And when one believes in Jesus, because they're reconnected to the source of life, this also means everlasting life. A life that will continue into eternity. This is why Jesus would say in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when Jesus gives one eternal life, there's the promise that physical death is not the end. Their life will continue past their earthly existence. On the last day, which is a reference to the final judgment that will occur at the return of Jesus, Jesus will raise up those who believe in him into fullness of eternal life. This is likewise why Jesus was talking to to Martha in John 11, 25, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, is Jesus being confusing here? Which, which one is it? Are you talking out both sides of your mouth, Jesus? Uh, wait, are we going to die or are we not going to die, right? And wh- what he's saying there, he says, though he, he die, he's talking about the end to our physical existence. Yes, that's going to happen. But yet, in some way, we shall never die. Because those who have eternal life in this lifetime, what they have is they have spiritual life. And that will ultimately triumph over death. This is why Jesus is the solution to the biggest problem confronting every one of us. What's the solution? The solution to the problem is life in Christ. Just to summarize again, on account of sin, what happens is we're disconnected from God. We miss out on spiritual life in him. And being separated from God leads to to physical death, which then leads to the second death. And in contrast, when we believe in Jesus, what happens is we are reconnected to the source of life. We regain spiritual life because life is in Jesus. It's also what the New Testament sometimes will call new life. And when that happens, the whole trajectory changes. Physical death can't come and snuff out the life of Christ in us. So, so when our physical existence comes to an end, we know that's not the end. Because that same power that was at work in Jesus that raised him from the dead will come and it will raise us from the dead. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus returns on that last day when that trumpet sounds, that that our bodies are going to be resurrected. So the body gets reunited to the soul. And it's not just that we get our old bodies back. We get glorified bodies. That which is corruptible is raised incorruptible. And instead of judgment leading to the lake of fire... We then will experience the, the fullness, the completion of eternal life when we enter into fellowship with God unmediated in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the full realization of eternal life, that future state. And while we await that, that full realization of eternal life, we can experience the benefits of eternal life right now. We can, we can lean into him and that life that he offers And we can find ourselves saying things like, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We find ourselves saying things like, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And so I want to ask you, where are you looking for life? Uh, We live in a day and age where we are subjected to a lot of marketing. There's a lot of advertising coming our way, and we have social media, which makes it really easy to compare. And I just want to acknowledge that it's easy to look to what we can accomplish or to look to what we can acquire, to look to what our kids or grandkids might do or what we can experience to go in to fill that God-shaped hole that all of us have in our heart. But we know that real life isn't found in those things, and that's why the scriptures keep calling us back and encouraging us to find life in God. We find this in Isaiah 55, one of my favorite passages. This is the invitation that is extended to us with the coming of Jesus. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, come without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? In other words, why why are you chasing for life elsewhere? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Here's the solution. Listen. Diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. It's an invitation to come to God. Hear or listen to me that your soul may live. Now, I want to be clear to the one who might be wondering well, you know, okay, if Jesus conveys his very life and we possess it the moment we believe in him, does that insulate us from suffering? Does that mean that those who believe in Jesus will never experience depression or heartache? And we know the answer to that is no. Right, Jesus himself was, was a man that was acquainted with sorrow and grief. And some very godly people have experienced what we might call the dark night of the soul. And so you might wonder, like, okay, am I backpedaling here? What was all the talk about Jesus giving streams of living water and life more abundantly? Well, I would say two things. One, we need to remember that the abundant life that Jesus offers isn't tied to our circumstances. It comes from Him. And so sometimes that means the things that can cause us the most pain uh, are things that Jesus can redeem because it drives us deeper into Him. And this is the point the Apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength That we despaired of life itself. So the greatest missionary ever knows something about hard times. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so this brings us to point number two. While we receive eternal life the moment we believe in Jesus, we only possess it partially in this life. Paul is still looking forward to a future point in time, to that resurrection of the dead. He knows the best is yet to come. And this this is what enables endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, or we could say a confident expectation. So we might be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We might be hard-pressed. But we know it doesn't need to leave to despair. We know we might ache, but we know we never have to break because that life that is in us, the life that Jesus gives, enables us to go forward into a broken world knowing that we're, we're awaiting restoration. So we can go forward and just knowing that it's the dark before the dawn. And the life that Jesus gives is what sustains in the dark nights and, and prevents grief from turning into bitterness. It's what enables us to sing it as well with my soul and to really mean it. And if there's one thing I want to communicate clearly, it's, it's how we take hold of this life, how we gain possession of it. We don't receive it by being a good person. We can't inherit it by virtue of having godly parents. We can't earn it by trying to live by the golden rule or do right by others. We don't gain it by coming to church. This is what 1 John 5 makes clear with regards to how we get access to this life and we solve the problem. It says this, 1 John 5, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You want to know for sure if you have life? Do you have Jesus? Jesus is the source of life. He's the one who convey it, can convey it. And he's not stingy with his life. There's not some really high bar of spiritual service or moral perfection. What does it say? How do we get it? He, he wants people to know for sure that they have it. If they have believed in the name of the Son of God. If they've believed in him. And if you've never done that before, I'm not talking about, have you said, okay, Jesus, I'm probably better off with you on my team. Uh, I'm going to make room for you. I'm talking, have you come to him in a a place of desperation? Have you come to him humbly? Have you come to him as a beggar and have you appealed to him and said, I'm thirsty. I'm needy. I've got a problem and I want the life that you give. And we're going to close now in prayer. And if you've never done that, I just I want to encourage you to make today the day that you receive eternal life. So will you bow your heads with me? God, I uh, I thank you so much for this reminder that we needed from your word. And I would just, uh, on behalf of all of us, acknowledge that we, we are people who have really poor memories And there are times that we have gone and we have spent our money on what is not bread and our labor on what does not satisfy. And we want to come to you. And we want to drink from your rivers of abundance. We want to feast on the good things that you provide. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. And for the person here who needs to... Have their name written in your book of life. You know who you are. And I would just invite you to to say a prayer like this. If you want to take hold of eternal life. You can say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm separated from you. And I thank you that you came to restore me to God. I want to receive the life that you offer. I want to forsake living for myself. And I want to live for you. And all God's people said, amen.